We will get started. There's a lot to talk about. This is only going to be a brief intro to this topic. You will likely have many, many questions. I hope you will, at least. This is just to broach it. Hopefully, you can come talk to me afterwards. Um, we will have a time of Q&A at the end, once I'm done with my presentation. So if any of the questions hit you as I'm going along, just write them down, and we'll get to them at the end. I may not be able to answer them, but maybe I will. So. I'm Nick Smart. I work at Penn State University. My primary responsibility is reaching to international students, reaching out to international students. In particular, and this is why I have such a passion for this, my primary demographic are Muslim students. Something that they will say and something that maybe you have come across in academia is this. Your Bible which you hold in your hands, is corrupt. If it's not Muslims, maybe you don't have any Muslims friend, Muslim friends, the general theme in academia is that the Bible cannot be trusted. There are too many variants. There's too many errors in transmission over the centuries, over the millennia. How can you trust the Bible that you hold is the true word of God? It's a hard question. Bart Ehrman is a professor at North Carolina University, Chapel Hill. And I don't know how many freshmen there are here, but one of the most popular classes each fall is called Religion 101. Freshmen come into his classroom, and he starts off by showing the Christians, namely the Christians, that their Bible is corrupt. This is what he says. There are more variants among the manuscripts of the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. If you can picture yourself as a college freshman, maybe you're a Christian coming to a university, and you walk into this classroom and you see this for the first time, you start thinking, maybe I wasn't told the truth growing up. And your faith starts shaking. My goal in this breakout this afternoon is twofold for two different audiences. For the skeptic, I hope to decrease your insecurity about the authenticity of the Bible, especially the New Testament, to decrease your skepticism about what we have, and for the believer, I hope to increase your assurance that what you have is the true word of God. And it does powerfully change lives. So what I'd like to share with you today is that there are many English translations of the Bible that you can trust are the word of God. And I'm going to show you why. So I'm not saying that the Bible does not have Variance. And you see at the top of your outline, I believe at the top of your outline, I define what I mean by corruption. When you hear corruption, it's in a very emotional, jolting word. And that's what academia, that's what Muslims will throw at you, is that your Bible is corrupt. What they mean when they say that is that there are variants between different manuscripts of the Bible. And you can see what a manuscript is there at the top of your page, too. It's a old, historically... Uh, it's a codified account of the New Testament that we still have in our possession. 
And when you compare manuscripts, you start seeing variants. That's what they mean when they say corrupt. And there are a lot of variants, but let me show you why. So if you look up here, this is not in the Bible. The cow ate green grass and then sat by the tree to take a nap. How many variants are there of this manuscript? Zero. There are zero variants. There's only one manuscript, so there are zero variants. With the New Testament scriptures, we are blessed with an abundance of riches. The reason there are so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts. If you actually study the history of Islam, what they did is they gathered all the variant readings and expunged them. They burned them. So they only had one copy. The question I would pose to you is if we only had one New Testament manuscript, could you really trust it? What I would propose to you is that Christians have all the pieces of the puzzle. And the hard work of textual criticism is to piece these puzzle, this puzzle back together. Whereas a religion like Islam, they have one piece to a thousand piece puzzle because they burned all the others. You can't trust that. So let me share with you this. In your seats, in your heads, how many variants are there between these two manuscripts? Don't shout it out. Just think about it. I'll give you some time. If you said five, you were correct. And let me diagnose each of these variants in particular. You see first in the left, the original manuscript would say the. In the right, we have a. In the left, we have green grass. In the right, we have just simply grass. The third error, there's a spelling error. Rather than then, we have van. The fourth error, we have an addition of in order to. And then the fifth error, we have a transposition of words. You see in the, set, the left one, it says, then sat by the tree to take a nap. In the right one, it said to take a nap by the tree. Now, let me ask you this. If you read either one of these, would you have the same conception of what's going on in your mind? Of course, any sensible human being would look at that and have the same picture in their mind of what's going on. And I would like to share with you that this is far and away the, the variance that we're talking about in the New Testament. If you will get into the number, you're probably wondering why there's a seven-year-old child on the screen. <laughs> Just hold out with me. If you were to stack on top of each other the, the manuscripts of ancient Greek literature, if you think of uh, Homer, the Iliad, other ancient Greek literature of that time, if you were to stack them one on top of each other, we would have a pile about the height of a seven-year-old child, about four or five feet tall. Now, this is where it gets crazy. If you were to stack just the Greek manuscripts, we're not talking the Latin, we're not talking the Syrian, uh, we're not talking any other language, just the Greek manuscripts. If you were to stack them one on top of each other, you'd get the height, a stack, the height of the Burj Khalifa, 
which is the tallest building in the world, twice. The reason there are so many variants is because we have an abundance of wealth, of riches. The New Testament, I don't want to overstate what I'm saying here. There is still work before us to puzzle it all together. But we have the true word of God in our possession by all the manuscripts that we have. No doubt about it. Now, why do I share all this with you? Well, I think, here's a Bruce Metzger, and I'll uh, refer you to his books at the end. If there's anyone I would refer you to, it would be this guy. Groundbreaking, past century. He's done a lot of work on New Testament textual criticism. He says what I just said. We are embarrassed by a wealth of material. Now, the reason I tell you all this is because twofold. The skeptic has a tendency to overstate the variance in the New Testament scripture. However, this is a prod for all you believers, we have a tendency to understate the variance in the New Testament scripture. And I would commend to you, we don't need to understate it. It's actually our strength. We have all the pieces to the puzzle. So, now that I've said we have all these pieces to the puzzle. How can I say that we can trust that we've gotten to the true word of God? How, how do we know that we put it all together? This is what I'd like to talk to you next. This is where we start. Uh, well, let, first, let me tell you the causes, actually. I skipped a point. Uh, before we get to restoration, I want to share with you the causes of why these variants show up. So first, if you think of this, look at this picture. This is a typical monastery, a medieval monastery, where we get a lot of copies, a lot of manuscripts of our New Testament. And if you think about it, Ben Franklin wasn't around at the time. We didn't have eyeglasses. And in these rooms, there was no Thomas Edison, low-lit rooms. You could imagine that eyesight would be an issue when you're copying uh, a manuscript. You're scribing a manuscript one after another. That's their whole job. That's one reason. If you think of it this way, there's two faults that occur with faulty eyesight. We have parablepsis. You see there on the, the right, you ever read a book and you, you have similar words at the end of the line? Uh, there's, there's one line that says something like, they were very, and then a couple lines later, it's they were very, and your eyes kind of get mixed up. What there was a tendency to do is parablepsis is jumping forward. So they would miss this whole section accidentally, not intentionally. They would skip this whole section. Instead of saying they were very evil, they would jump to they were very hungry and miss a section. The other case is true as well. If they were down here, it's called didography or repeated, ditto. Uh, they were very hungry. When they get over here, their eye jumps back up here and they repeat what they had already written. Unintentional. Uh, another case is faulty hearing. Close your eyes real quick. Act as if you are a scribe in your medieval monastery, I'm going to say two statements. He traded those for coins. He traded those for coins. Here's another one. Close your eyes again. It was there, child. It was there, child. And one more time, you won't understand this because I think this is the Greek one, but close your eyes again. This is Romans 5.1. This is actually a, a variant that we have. 
Ekamain prosthon theon. Ekamain prosthon theon. You see that it's actually very reasonable that we have some of these variations. That's another case, is the hearing. And then lastly, the faulty mind. These are all unintentional. Instead of writing, the man said, they could have been relying on their memory and said, and the man spoke. Again, the sense doesn't change. Or here, he rent, he right away, and right away he went into the town, and immediately he went into the town. It doesn't change the sense. And then this one, this is interesting. This is the Greek, and this, both sides say, Jesus loved John. Hahiezu, phileo, ioannin. Now, you can say, Jesus loves John, guess how many ways? 18 different ways in the Greek. On the right, says the same thing. Here's another case. On the left, says Jesus loves John. On the right, says Jesus loves John. And these transposition of words would count as a variant. Now, if you read Jesus loved John in both of these manuscripts, are you coming away with a different idea? No, not at all. This is far and away most of the variants that we have. Now there are, and this is where the skeptics find trouble, there are intentional causes of error. Three of them I'll mention really quick. One is harmonization. In order to make the scriptures fit together, there would have been a scribe that felt like it would have flowed better if he would have added clarity to the verse, as it said in the prophet, is the original. And then the scribe felt like he needed to clarify it and put in Isaiah. The scribe should not have done that. He did. But again, the sense of the text is not affected. Here's another one. Then Jesus came to the people is reading one. So this is not the original. This is a copy. These two. And the scribe sits down with these two copies before him. This one says, then Jesus came to the people. This one says, then Jesus gathered with the people. And that scribe this is the word of God. What do I do? You can't leave anything out, so you just smush them together. Then Jesus came and gathered with the people. This is called conflation. And this is a serious error. We, we don't want, we, we should care about every single word that comes from the mouth of God. But you see there's no ill intent behind it. There's actually a lot of good intent. I don't want to miss anything. However, there is... One type of error, and it's very, 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 very rare that this happens. It's intentional, and it's theologically motivated. One of these is in 1 John 5.7. You can flip over your Bible, open your Bibles, 1 John 5.7, if you want to, just to see it for yourself. Uh, the original likely did not include in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. What happened was, striving against the opponents, the Arians of the day, the other uh, heresies of the day, um, the church fathers or the scribes were looking for some evidence. It's very hard to just get an explicit referral to the Trinity in the New Testament, right? It's very hard. If you talk to a Muslim, they'll pin you on that. I think it's very clear, but it doesn't say uh, God is three and one in the New Testament. It doesn't say that. Just like it doesn't say Tawheed in the, the Quran, it doesn't say God is one in the Quran, but they would say it's very clear. 
This is an example of a theologically motivated variant for the sake of winsomeness and promoting the gospel. And this is one that we should really condemn and one we should really be aware of. So why do I mention all this to you? I believe it's important for Christians to recognize textual variants, or you can call them corruptions, and historically assess each one of them. I think it would be a problem if Christians would just blissfully be ignorant of all this textual history. Well, it doesn't matter. What we got right here is the Word of God, the ESV. It's faithfully preserved to us. I think, I love the ESV, but I think that would be a major problem, and people will not be one to the gospel if you make that your hill to die on. The history shows us that there's this problem. There's this puzzle. We need to put it together. However, I don't think we have to draw the same conclusions as skeptics. Skeptics may, be rightfully, may rightfully point out to us that there's variance. That doesn't mean that their conclusion is correct. It doesn't mean that you can't trust the Word of God. It doesn't mean that the Trinity is not in the Bible. All those things. So just be confident as a believer. Now, what is the magnitude of these? I kind of mentioned this briefly, but all the debated significant variants that we have in the New Testament is right there. You see that sliver? I don't think you probably can with this lighting. 0.05% of all the words in the New Testament are considered to be opened for discussion still and significant. And I can define those terms for you afterwards if you'd like a little more discussion on that. We are, wow, I just went up. We are very confident about the words that we have in our New Testament scripture. So what does this mean for you today? Academia will try and press on you that the Bible is corrupt. Don't buy it. Ask them why they think it's corrupt. Tell them, tell them to show you the evidence. And then you can show them your evidence. You can come up and look at this afterwards. This is the Greek New Testament with all the variants listed. Christianity does not hide behind a curtain of their variants. We are very open. We say, here's the variants, but we're pretty confident about what we have. There has been much evidence. There is much to be proud of historically for the Christian, textually for the Christian. And much work has been done on these things, on these manuscripts, so that you can know that you have the true Word of God in your hand. Most English translations you have today are faithful to the true Word of God. So, now that we've talked about how I can, I've, I've told you you should trust it, but how do we know we can trust it? It goes through this process of New Testament textual criticism. And this is what I would call the restoration. This is your second point on your outline. This is where we'll see how the, the puzzle is fit together. How do we piece this puzzle together? And the first thing on your outline you see there is we first have to find it. It's like a treasure hunt. Did you know Indiana Jones was inspired by New Testament manuscript discovery? Isn't that crazy? That's the type of stuff. It's like I could go on for days of some of the drama, some of the stories that come from discoveries in the New Testament. It's wild, but you go into the desert areas of Egypt and you find these manuscripts and they are the basis for our discoveries. They are very scientific, objective standards for our New Testament today. Here's a couple of them. This one is P52. This is probably the oldest 
manuscript. It's papyri. You can see that the, the letters are capital letters. This was the oldest script of the New Testament, and it's on papyri, which was the oldest material of the New Testament. Many of these manuscripts, unfortunately, the United States doesn't own because we're too late to the game. That's okay. Uh, this is of the Gospel of John. It's about the size of a credit card. So not very big, but the, the papyri manuscripts are the gold standard in New Testament textual criticism. This is probably my favorite manuscript. I'm nerding out a little here. I got to see a copy of it in the Bible Museum. Shameless plug to go check out the fourth floor of the Bible Museum. Uh, this is called Codex Vat Vaticanus. This is the first, it's debated, but likely the first complete Bible. It's all in Greek, so it wasn't the Hebrew and the Greek. It was all Greek. You got the Septuagint of the Old Testament and the New Testament all put together. This is the first Bible we have, or the oldest Bible we have in our possession. Unfortunately, Vatican has it, the Vatican in Rome. Uh, we only have copies. It's, uh, I'm glad they're keeping safe, care, good care of it, though. Uh, its ancestor, I'll just throw this in as a little tidbit. I don't think you care about it, but I'm going to geek out. P75, P75 is an ancestor of Vaticanus. And P75, and this is called Vaticanus or, or uh, Codex B, they are two of the most important manuscripts that we have to base our New Testament on. They line up very similarly, and they're over 100 years apart. Shows you the, the purity of transmission of the scripture. Uh, these ones are called minuscules. You can see they're a little more elegant. This is the medieval. You can think of the scribes in their medieval uh, monasteries drawing their art. This was their day job, so that's why they took so much time and they're so talented at it. You can see that the script has changed from capital letters with no spacing to lowercase letters, minuscule letters with spacing. That's how we can tell that these are the younger manuscripts that we have in our possession. These are the ones that, they're helpful, and we don't want to throw them away, but they're not as helpful as the papyri and the old codex like this, Codex Vaticanus. This is the old script. See this uh, majuscule script uh, from the early centuries of Christendom? This one is not as weighty, but nonetheless, it's part of the discoveries we have. Now, why do I show you this? Christianity is not opposed to the scientific method. If any of you went to Mike Chartowicz's talk earlier today, I would like to echo that and say that Christianity, especially the textual basis for the New Testament, is very scientifically founded based on these discoveries that we have in our possession. And once we have the discoveries, though, how do we analyze them? And this is where we get into what I would call the canons of New Testament textual criticism. We just talked about eternal or external evidence. That's discovering the evidence. And Westcott and Hort, who were two leaders of this in the 1800s, said that the knowledge of documents should precede decisions upon the readings. What they were saying is you need to know how special the document is that you're looking at. How close was it to the original manuscript or the original autograph or what the apostles wrote? I should define some of these terms. Apostles wrote on the autograph. Anything after the autograph that was copied is called a manuscript. That's what I'm referring to it as. How close to the apostles can we get our manuscript? They shouldn't be counted. We shouldn't just count the majority of the manuscripts, which we have the majority of these younger manuscripts. We should weigh the manuscripts. Are they old? 
And are they close to the apostles like this one? Okay, so that's external evidence. Westcott and Hort, if there's a, a gradient of whether you uh, favor external or internal evidence, and I'll get to internal evidence in a little, they would be far on this end. They say, if it's in Vaticanus, if it's in Codex B, that's my scripture. That's kind of what they're saying. The other side is pretty subjective, but we still need it. Internal evidence is talking about the grammar the structure of the passage, the lexicon, the style of the author. And at the question in the uh, New Testament textual critic who favors internal evidence is, what would the author have wrote in this instance? That's pretty subjective, but it can be helpful at times when you look at the expanse of their writing. Uh, yeah, here's J.K. Eliot is a proponent of this type of criticism, which reading is in accord with our author's style or language and theology, and why and how did the alternative readings occur? He would be on this end. Rather than, he wouldn't care about Vaticanus as much, he would just put the weight in what should the authors have written, which is kind of dangerous. However, stay with me. The reason I bring these two opposing forces to your awareness is that the English Bible that you hold in your hand is a beautiful mixture of both of these methods. It's called reasoned eclecticism. And I'd like to put a quote up here by Daniel Wallace. Reasoned eclectics recognize that even though all internal evidence is subjective, it is not all equally subjective. And although all manuscripts are corrupt, they're not equally corrupt. And what he means there, that the autographs were the inspired, inerrant word of God. From there, from any copy we have, there's likely errors. And he advocates for this balance, to weigh, to favor the external evidence, but to also use internal evidence when needed. Okay, so what does this mean for us today. As much as we would have liked the apostles to, once they were done with the letters, to just stuff them in a time capsule and put them in the ground for 2,000 years so we could have them perfectly preserved, that's just not how it worked. These were letters for churches, for people with their eternal souls depending on those apostles' words. They were sent everywhere. They got greasy oil stains all over them. The weather, you think about carrying a letter from city to city in the rain, the, the, the weather conditions got to them. The oily skin got to them. Age got to them. But that doesn't mean we don't have a true word of God in our possession today. You can be confident that because of the multitude of manuscripts that we have, we can piece together this puzzle. You can trust your English translation, which you hold in your hands. All right, so let's get into a case study. All this stuff you've heard, it's a, it's a fire hydrant course that I just gave you, but let's, let's put the rubber to the road. If you open your Bibles to Matthew 24, 36, we'll end here. Open, everybody open your Bibles to Matthew 24, 36. The ESV is somewhat of an enigma in their translation, and I'll explain that later. But I put up here on the screen two different versions, English versions of this verse. 
First one says this from the Christian Standard Bible. It's used primarily by the Southern Baptists. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. The Net Bible says this, but as for that day and hour, no one knows it, not even the angels in heaven except the Father alone. Do you notice what's different there? nor the Son is omitted from one. People like Bart Ehrman, he's a great textual critic, but because of his, his preconceived notions, he automatically jumps to the idea that nor the Son was omitted for theological reasons, to deceive all of you. Because what does that say? If the, if the son did not know the day or the hour, then you don't have a divine Jesus Christ. That's what critics, that's what academia will, will take from this. This is actually his quote. The reason for the omission in the early copies is not hard to postulate. If Jesus does not know the future, the Christian claim that he is a divine being is more than a little compromised. So what is it? Was nor the son omitted or was it included? I would like to share with you that I, I think that nor the Son was originally omitted. However, I'm going against the grain of what many people think. In your ESV copies, I imagine many have ESV copies. It says, not even the Son of Man, or not even the angels, nor the Son of Man. Am I, am I correct at that? Um, that is not usually how ude, when paired with day, neither nor, it's usually translated neither nor. There's two references, the angels, neither the angels, nor the Son of Man. So the fact that the ESV has not even the Son of Man actually lines up pretty well with the Net Bible, if you see it here. See, they don't include nor the Son. They don't have a second referent. So why do I tell you all this? What, how do we know what was the original wording? Like I said, the external evidence actually very much favors nor the son being the original. My favorite boy up there, B, you see B? He's testifying that nor the son was in it. Another old codex, Aleph, is testifying that nor the son was included. And no one, in the internal evidence, those who advocate for nor the sun being original, no one would say, in their right minds, would add nor the sun. If you're a scribe copying the Gospel of Matthew, you wouldn't add nor the sun, because that gives an idea that Jesus is not omnipotent or omniscient. So that's the evidence for nor the sun being original. And I mentioned this as well. The use of neither would necessitate at least two different reference. So ude, they translate, many translate it as, as neither. The Greek word ude, many translate that as neither. And when they see ude, they say, well, it can't just be one thing. It has to be two things. It has to be neither nor. It can't just be neither the angels. However, the arguments for nor the sun being added later are also strong. You can see here that the first corrector 
of Aleph went by and said, well, actually, that's not right. He must have had some testimony, some document testifying that nor the sun wasn't included. Washington, uh, this is, I can't say it because it's a weird name, but W is actually in the United States and in Washington. We should be proud of that. But uh, it's also a strong document, not as strong externally as nor the sun being original. However, the internal evidence is where we see the strength of this argument. The temptation with the scribes would be to harmonize with a passage like Mark 13.32. Mark 13.32 very clearly in all the manuscripts has nor the son. So the scribe writing this account of Matthew would think, hmm, why is nor the son not here? And have a tendency to include it. Matthew has 27 instances of that Greek word ude in the gospel. 26 of them are only used with one referent. And that's why the Net Bible translates it as not even. Rather than neither, it translates it as not even. And then I want you to pay attention to this one word that really sums up the strength of this argument. This addition. You see this? Alone? It's nowhere up there. Well, I guess it's up there, but <laughs> nor the Son, it's added to Matthew. It's not added to Mark. You see there, only or alone. In Mark, it doesn't have alone. And here's what I'd like to land on. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he has a tendency to soften what Mark wrote before him. And this would be assuming that Mark wrote the gospel first and Matthew would have Mark's gospel in his possession. Where Mark would come out and say, nor the son. Which some might hear as Jesus is not omniscient. Matthew had the tendency to soften that harshness. And he shrouded it. He didn't get rid of it. Rather, he said, what did he say? He said, alone. Matthew omitted nor the son, but added the word alone to keep the same sense. Only the Father in heaven knows the day or the hour, which is intimating that the son also doesn't know, but he wanted to shroud it. So perhaps your wheels are spinning right now, and that's my hope. Perhaps you have more questions than answers right now. That was my hope from the beginning, that your heads would be spinning, uh, that you'd have more questions than answers. And here's why. Many Christians are insecure in their standing in the scientific community. Many Christians are insecure in the authenticity of the transmission they have before them. And I will tell you, there are much smarter people than me, much smarter people than you in the history of the world who have worked long, tireless, decades to give you the word of God that you have in your hand. Much work has been put into it. Lives have been risked, like Indiana Jones. I don't know if it was that bad, but lives have been risked. Blood, sweat, and tears have been shed to present to you a faithful testimony of the true word of God. So the next time you meet that skeptic, an academia professor, or the next time you meet that Muslim friend, 
Do not understate the variance in the New Testament, but also challenge them when they overstate it. Challenge their conclusion on the facts that are before them. Let me give you a couple applications. First, do your research. Uh, I would commend to you two authors, Daniel Wallace. Daniel Wallace and Bruce Metzger. If this is a topic of interest to you or you have a friend that struggles with this, I advise to you their books. I can give you the titles of their books afterwards. Secondly, if you don't have a copy of the Net Bible and you're interested in this, the Net Bible is very helpful. It's got kind of an image of peeking over the shoulder of the translators who put it together. They'll tell you all the variants. They'll tell you, why did I choose this word over this word. It's like peeking over their shoulders while they're in their office translating the scriptures. And then, who was my brother excited about the Bible Museum? Yes. Go to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. Go specifically to the fourth floor. If you want to be proud of your heritage, that will do it. Take unbelieving friends with you. There is much to be proud of. I'd like to close how I started by saying no matter your experiences with unbelievers about the transmission and faithfulness of the, the text, Christians can be proud of the rich heritage of faithful and meticulous transmission and analysis that takes up most of your English translations. So with that, I'd like to take some questions. Oh, wow. All right. So we got Mike's. Good, I ended 35 minutes, so we should have a good time for questions. Just pick one. Yeah. So just out of curiosity, you said most of the translations we can trust. Is yeah. there any translations that we can't trust or you wouldn't recommend? So if you ever hear somebody, that's a great question. If you ever hear somebody in Christian circles saying, my copy's a word-for-word -word translation, don't buy it. There is no word-for-word -word translation. If it's word-for-word, -word, it's Greek-to-Greek. If it's in your language, it's going through some sort of filter of translation. So, but I do think there are some versions that are more so word for word or have an emphasis where it may not make sense, but they want to stay faithful to the awkwardness of the text, perhaps. Uh, the ESV is a good one. The NET is a good one. Uh, the CSB is also good. There's different philosophies underlying each of these translations, so that's a big question. I would tend to stay away from the ones that paraphrase or uh, contemporize the scripture for the sake of, uh, how should I say this nicely? For the sake of ease to understand, I'll say. I'll stay away from those. And I'm not going to say any of those right now because I don't want to offend anybody unnecessarily, but you can talk to me afterwards. Um, I have two questions. So. On the one end, you could say that it's potentially corrupted through the different manuscripts. And I think people who may be a little bit more um, against the Bible can see that it's maybe corrupted through the translations, through Greek, Hebrew, up into the languages we have now. What do you have to answer that, as well as parts of the Bible that were added or removed, like parts in the, one of the Gospels where it's about stoning a woman or like stuff like that that's either cut out or yeah added. so you see all this work just for, done for these three words 
this is the same type of work that is done for every single word of the New Testament. It's been done before us. I still think there's work that could be done, especially if we have new discoveries. But what I would say is uh, lean into this approach. Uh, look at the external evidence available. Which, which are the oldest documents that attest to this reading? And then look at the sense of the text. Does it actually make sense, or was it put there to conflate ideas? Uh, Bart Ehrman, I'll say this. Bart Ehrman notes that I believe it's the book of Acts. is somewhere along the lines of double-digit percentage longer than what we would say is the original wording of the book of Acts, the English translations. Or sorry, not some of the English translations. Some of the older copies were 10 to 20% longer than some of the earliest translations we have. So a good rule of thumb is that it's likely that the shorter reading is the better reading. Likely, in, in many cases. Because what I would say is my canon is the hardest reading is the most trusted reading. That's what Westcott and Hort would say, is that if it's harder to make sense of it, it's probably right, and we got to deal with it. There would have been a tendency to make it easier by scribes. Yeah. I was just going to say the Ethiopian Bible is considered to be the um, closest uh, Bible. Which the, Bible is the closest? No, the Ethiopian Bible is to be considered. Oh, the Ethiopian the Bible? Closest to the original Bible. To the, the oldest Bible. To the Greek? Yeah. So yeah. why don't we use that? Because. Well, the, the, yeah. what was the language that comprised the Ethiopian Bible? In Amharic. Yeah, Amharic. The Amharic is actually not the original language in the New Testament. And the original languages, for the faithfulness of our church fathers, would try and keep that language. Christianity is a global religion, so it wanted to translate it into Amharic, unlike Islam, where it keeps it in Arabic. Mm -hmm. um, it wants to translate it into different languages so people can know it. But the best manuscripts we had, like I mentioned before, are the ones that are Greek. Even the papyri, like I mentioned, the gold standard, those are the oldest we have. And that takes us back to the first century. And that's written in Greek. Yeah. When talking to Christians and non-Christians about scripture that wasn't in the original manuscripts, such as Mark 16 and John 7:53, how do you go about that? like talking to Christians and non-Christians about those scriptures? I would first not draw an easy conclusion. Don't say, well, it wasn't in there, or well, it was in there. That's not going to be that winsome. Say, yeah, it's a, hard, it's a hard subject. Why don't you study it with me? Take them on a journey. Maybe you'll find something out too. That's kind of overarching answer I'd give. I have thoughts about those two texts in particular, but we can talk afterwards. Yeah. I guess I'm next. Um, so yeah, first of all, I wanted to say thank you so much for yeah. you know this this all of this. I think it's really good, and you know, kind of going back to what you said, kind of to start uh, the whole wealth of information we have. I think is one of our greatest strengths, and also even just the openness that we have to be able to talk about this in this room. I mean, I think of you know maybe some of the more sketchy <laughs> beliefs out there. They're always trying to hide away and reduce the amount of uh, studying you can do on stuff like this. But mm -hmm. uh, my question, so. And kind of that kind of plays into it a little bit. Um, so in your opinion, you know, why don't you think that the church pushes for more of this type of knowledge um, and, you know, work to kind of refine what we have? And, That's a great question. And then a, a, another yeah. follow-up real quick on that, too, is kind of the concept of biblical inerrant, inerrancy. Yes. So what do you think about that? Should the church be redefining that to maybe 
open it up a little bit. You're pretty studied up on this. That's good. <laughs> You're putting a reformed guy on the spot with an errancy. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> your first question was, I got caught up by your second question. What was your first question? Uh, so my first question is, why don't you think the church maybe pushes for more of this knowledge? Okay, yeah. Let me answer that one first. I will use the KJ. There's this, this group, and I'm not trying to offend anybody. I think the King James Version is a beautiful version. Everybody should own a copy of the King James Version. It's a beautiful work of art, beautiful translation. However, there are some people that say the Word of God was preserved and established in the 1611 King James Version of the Bible, and that is the Word of God and nothing else is. And I believe if you really ask questions behind why they think that, they use the word uh, inerrancy. I, I like using the word true rather than inerrant. Um, however, they would, would say that preservation is uh, synonymous with inspiration. If it's not preserved, then it can't be the inspired word of God. So they feel like they have to have a preserved word that has made its way all through the ages and a stamp of approval is on it in 1611 and they're good. So it's an insecurity, I would say, is at the root of most of it. Um, you know, I could write down on a piece of paper, uh, Nick is the best, put it in a time capsule and 2,000 years from now, you, somebody comes across it. That doesn't mean it's true. Preservation does not mean truth. And I think that's the tendency is to feel like preservation. Muslims have done a great job at preserving the Quran. That definitely doesn't mean it's true. And I think there's a tendency to conflate the two, if that answers your question. As for the inerrancy, uh, I want to speak with nuance that I believe takes more time than right now. So talk to me afterward. And I don't want to be recorded saying it. So <laughs> I'll disagree with myself in 10 years. <laughs> Other so, questions? So this is kind of an odd question, but what is considered like the youngest or Who the am newest? Who I talking to? Oh, there you are. Hey, I'm Joe. Um, <laughs> what are the like youngest or like newest manuscripts that people would like look at? Like obviously they print the Bible today and they don't look at that as a manuscript. So what are like Do you the... mean new as in when the manuscripts were written or new as in new discoveries? Like when they're written, not as When they were written? Yeah. The newest ones we have are called Byzantine texts. They're these style. They were written in the medieval times, anywhere from 900 to even up to 1500. Somebody, it's a funny story, but some guy really wanted something in the Bible, so he concocted this manuscript that looked like a medieval text and influenced somebody. To, and that's the, that's the John passage we looked at to add the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was in 1500. It's not a good, good rule of thumb for scribes, but yeah. These are the newest ones. Yeah. Any other questions? 450. All right. If you have any questions, please talk to me afterwards. Uh, I hope your heads are spinning, and I hope you are more secure in your faith because of this. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have faithfully uh, brought it to us through the work of many people, through the faithfulness of your apostles the faithfulness of your church. I ask that you would help us rest in the, the assurance that the Spirit will guide us, the Spirit will bring to us the Word, and I ask that we would be motivated to work towards that end, to, to really press into what is your Word. 
Thank you for the beautiful English translations you've given us today. In Christ's name, amen.